This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed t-shirts. Harry Baby shipped to 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, Harry Baby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS, that's 80DAYS, to get 10% off. I am willing to wager 20000 I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast, as per usual, is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Verduts, Liechtenstein. Oh, you're in Liechtenstein, Joe? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just <laughs> popped over for a visit. Surprise! It's really nice. That's, that's a coincidence. Um, because we're doing an episode on Liechtenstein today. We are. Yeah, we are doing an episode on Liechtenstein. Awkward. That's, that's why I'm here. Ah. Thanks to our Kickstarter backers, we were able to branch out a bit more this season. So I was able to uh, to go to our location for the episode this week, do a bit of research. It is right next door to where I regularly live. So it won't come as any surprise what, uh, what country we're covering today. All right. In this episode, we will be talking, as you've heard, about the Principality of Liechtenstein, a central European microstate that's just one of two double landlocked countries in the world and the only country contained entirely within the Alps. Bordered by Switzerland to the west and south and Austria to the east and north, Liechtenstein is a mountainous nation with a strong economy, high GDP, low unemployment and very little crime. Its western border is the River Rhine, which has made it occasionally an important border between empires. Ruled by a monarchy with the prince as a head of state, Liechtenstein has been a sovereign, neutral nation since the dissolution of the German Confederation in 1868. At just 160 square kilometers or 60 square miles, it is the sixth smallest country on earth with a population of just over 40,000 people. While it's not a member of the EU, Liechtenstein has strong links to its European neighbors, particularly Switzerland, with whom it shares a customs union and currency and currently Joe Byrne. Is that right? Um, I gotta be honest. Right now, I'm actually back in Bern, Switzerland. You liar. I was in Vaduz last weekend, uh, and during my stay, I, I was able to go the whole length of the country over the course of two days without any effort from Switzerland, and I walked into Austria. Wow. I think this puts everything else you said in the podcast into question, Joe, <laughs> frankly. Uh, I think we yeah. need to just re-record from the start. Uh, <laughs> to, to regain my credibility. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, through, through, throughout the episode, you're going to hear a number of clips from that trip interspersed into the episode. And so before we dive into the history of this little place, I think it's worth mentioning up top that a lot of the time history has kind of moved around Liechtenstein or passed it by. For sure. It never fought for its independence. Uh, it's been neutral in most Lazy. of the wars. Uh, it's wealthy. And in some ways it really feels like it's timeless. So I spoke to two teenagers from the country's uh, academic high school that's called a gymnasium in the German-speaking world. So this is 
Juliana and uh, Sebastian. And they, I think they express quite well the kind of feeling in, in Liechtenstein about history. And I asked them, like, do you think a lot about history? Do your parents talk a lot about history? And this is uh, what they had to say. It's not important, like, yeah. for us. Like when there was someone war or something, we really... Because never... we don't have a military and it's like we are... Yeah. We are not... Not connected. Yeah, you know. With the war or... We are the outsider from the history from the whole planet. So mm-hmm. you feel in a bubble almost. Yes. Yeah. But, that's... but safe in a bubble? Safe, Yeah, yes. safe, I think. Okay. So you don't feel like the country's left out, you feel like it's a good thing? Yes. Yeah. That's, a, that's yeah, an interesting, interesting point of view. Point, yeah. I, I can understand because you've got... You, you know. actually feel mountain. like you're in a yes. bubble. You're, you're nestled into the... Could, could, could you describe the country to someone listening who have never been I here and will never be here? Wow. Just, you know, it's a, it's a small country, so... It, it's like a stadium. The mountains are the viewers and we are the we are the, the footballers, like, players. or the baseball players, or diagonal yeah. players. I like it. I like the mountains, I like that we are embracing. Like you're yes. closed yes. in, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's a good analogy, I like that, yeah. So it feels like a hug. Yeah, I like a hug, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> that other voice you heard in that clip was uh, Sinead Dowling, who works in the school and, and uh, set up that interview. So and, and also showed me around a decent chunk of the country. Thanks very much to so her. You might hear her once or twice. Yeah. 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 It was appreciated. Big ups. Uh, there's Irish people everywhere, it turns out. <laughs> so, yeah, like like those uh, kids mentioned in that clip there, um, it's very much like a isolated part of the world, surrounded by the Alps. It's only 40,000 people. I, I don't know if you can speak to this, Joe, but uh, a lot of the stuff that I read seems to indicate that it doesn't even have a strong cultural identity uh, because it's mm. such a small place. Would you agree with that? Or I don't want to insult anyone. Okay. <laughs> but I... Gloves are off. Kitty's got claws. I, I asked this question a lot to people. I tried to get good answers out of people. You know, what makes you unique? What makes it not just another canton of Switzerland or not just part of Austria? What are you? And because, I mean, you know, other countries you can point to a particular thing, a music or a historical event or whatever. In Liechtenstein, the prince who rules it, obviously that's different. They're a monarchy when their neighbours aren't. A lot of people pointed to their dialect of German that they speak. It's an Alemannic dialect of German, and we might mention that again later. But it's not so different to the neighbouring Swiss dialects. Like all through Switzerland, mm. there are these different dialects of German. And Liechtenstein German is, sure, it's different, but it's no more different than the various dialects within Switzerland. Joe, are you dancing around the point that they're not special? <laughs> that everybody, everybody, everybody tries to convince themselves they're special. And for yeah. whatever reason, they are actually comfortable with not being special. So comfortable, yeah, I, I, they've never I, bothered I, to make up a funny hat or a weird type of pudding yeah. or some damn thing that makes them, that is, you know, they can point to as being Liechtensteinian. I'd almost say that they're not that pushed. Yeah, right. they like yeah. they like the, the they they like putting crowns and things, but they're you know it's an Alpine culture. It resembles Austrian and, and uh, Swiss Alpine culture I think in a lot of ways. Just being rich as hell is enough for them. They yeah. they know who they are sitting on their pile of yeah. money. <laughs> it feels a little different. It feels a bit more parochial, mm. a bit more villagey, if you get me. A, a golden village made of yeah. made of gold. Yeah. All right, Mark, do you want to give us uh, a little bit on the early history of Liechtenstein? And let's, let's dive way back. 
just, I guess, to, to harken back to some of the points that have already been made, Liechtenstein's really, really small. It's only become a country or, you know, a thing in any regard in the last couple of hundred years. So when you think about its history, it's it's just a tiny plot of land somewhere in the Alps. So anything that's there of, you know, archaeological merit, it's just things that people dropped passing through or things that were just there by happenstance. There, none of these things are, you know, uniquely Liechtensteinian they're, or Liechtensteinery. What, Joe, what's the adjective? L- L- Liechtensteiner, I think. Lichten, Lich, none of these are Liechtensteiner-y. I don't know. It doesn't feel right. <laughs> but they, they, they relate to all of the huge empires and uh, continental macro shifts that were happening around Liechtenstein. So the, the the valley itself probably inhabited from somewhere between 5,000 to 3,000 BC. For sure, there was people in the area. Whether there was any uh, permanent settlements there, it's, it's a bit harder to say. Certainly from 3,000 BC onwards. In terms of uh, any kind of recorded history, you need to go more to, towards the Celtic period. So the Hallstatt and Latin cultures. There we're talking about Bronze Age into, into Iron Age. A lot of simple ceramics, fragments found in, in Liechtenstein, but a lot more ornate metalwork. I um, saw a couple of swords in one of the museums that were from various parts of the Alpine part of the country. Yeah. Um, so s- things like uh, coinage, uh, big chunks of armor, things like that are characteristic of the later stage of, of, of Celtic, uh, Celtic culture. But particularly to, to Liechtenstein, uh, quite a lot of figurines in bronze that are pretty, mm. pretty amazing. Uh, bronze boars... Uh, bronze kind of uh, Celtic iconography, uh, stags. There's a warrior, which you refer to, and I still refer to elsewhere, as the Gutenberg Mars. Gutenberg yes, exactly. Being, being where they, they, they dug them up. And you said it had a really big penis, Joe. But I looked at it, and it looks to me like a small penis. And I don't know whether there's maybe multiple penises, but I feel like we should put a picture up to get a, a vote from the audience. Oh, this, it, this has to be a Twitter saw, poll. This absolutely has to be a Twitter poll. I thought it was there a... There was a range of bronze figures in the in the, uh, the National Museum. Okay. And they're all... Put it this way. They all very... They're very clearly endowed. Maybe not as well as you would like, but they're, they're definitely a focus of the <laughs> Oh, of Joe, the, the one I saw, I thought it was a dent. I thought it was a dent <laughs> into the thing or like a little bit maybe where the penis had been snapped off. And I was looking at it and like, Joe, Joe told me to expect some graphic, gra- engorged, uh, engorged phalluses. And I was just looking at this little thing. I was like, oh, geez, I don't know. I don't know about this. This is not um, not something to write home to mom about. <laughs> maybe that's the wrong phrase. Write, write home about a big penis you saw. Um, dear mother. The the historians or the archaeologists think they were part of some kind of uh, fertility cult, kind of a warrior fertility cult thing that was centered around the hill in Gutenberg. Yeah, so that, um, that's where they were found. But so I, I I don't know. I'm not an expert on Celtic um, fertility symbol symbology. And more <laughs> more is the pity. More is the pity. Um, but yeah, honestly, they're really amazing. I I I kind of expected them to be a lot more basic, to be uh, you know not be in the amazing condition that these things are in. These are like. All, quite modern, in fact, in, in terms of how they look. You could see uh, one of them in maybe like a, a in a craft shop or something like that. They're they're really amazing detail, but also beyond that, they're not just going for realism. They have a certain kind of a uh, I would say like an interpretational kind of uh, ethos affecting how they're 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 um, 
sculpting these pieces of bronze. They're really, really, really advanced stuff, really amazing. Moving on a little bit beyond, you know, the, the Celtic things, you got to go to the Romans, uh, super important in the area. So the, the, the Celts called this place Raetia. The Romans certainly called it uh, Raetia okay. is what I read. But um, it probably came from the Celtic. But it's not necessarily, like, I mean, the Romans called it whatever the hell the Romans wanted because they yeah, owned the probably place. A, I, think, I think that's based on the name of the Celtic tribe. Yeah, it's a, it's a Romanization, I think, of hmm. probably what the actual Celtic name was, which I think came from the word uh, rate, uh, meaning mountain land. Uh, okay, I, I that's, couldn't that, get... that, that's descriptive enough, yep. yeah. Um, so the Rations uh, themselves, the people who were going to, you know, be taken over by the Romans subsequently and were probably the, 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 the descended from the Celts in part, are believed to have been of Etruscan origin. So uh, we're talking oh. Rome, Tuscany, Midwest to North Italy. And then they moved gradually uh, further north into Switzerland, into the valleys there. Um, by the time the Romans turned up, I found a, a nice quote to describe the, the, the Rhetians. Uh, the Rhetians and the Celts were blended together into a hardy, warlike race of mountain people. So tough nuts. Um <laughs> And when the Romans came knocking, it was 15 BC. So it was quite mm-hmm. late on in the Roman period, considering how close the area actually is. And it was uh, Tiberius who would go on to be uh, Emperor Tiberius and his brother Drusus, mm-hmm. who were themselves the stepsons of uh, Caesar Augustus. He was consolidating his position at this point. Yeah, he, he came after Julius Caesar, who was the first mm-hmm. Caesar, and then basically became uh, Caesar Augustus, who was kind of the main guy who had to do the, a lot of... He was probably of... the first one to turn Caesar into an emperor title. Yeah, he... he, he the first one to make a success of Caesaring. I should just mention here, there's, there's a really good podcast called The Rhine, which is all about the history of France and Germany mm. and Switzerland and this part of the world around the River Rhine, which is what Liechtenstein is. And he doesn't dwell very long on the conquering of Liechtenstein, but episode 10 of that does talk about this conquering of this part of the world by by um, Tiberius and Drusus. You have Drusus and Tiberius, and they actually attack from different directions. One comes from Italy, one comes from Gaul, and they double team Risha. Super team? Did they super team, Mark? Uh, Super double team. So they take their armies into Risha. They penetrate it physically and metaphorically. So they spread the Roman influence further north into Risha. And then Risha itself was used as the sort of staging post for going even further north into what was called Noricum, uh, which is North Austria. So Risha was, you know, I guess was just a one stop on the way. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. maybe a good way to look at it in the future because Liechtenstein particularly is important in terms of Roman transport. Um, maybe, Joe, do you have something on that? Here's a clip of part of what, what you can still see of Roman Liechtenstein. Cool. Just outside the village of Nendel. You mentioned how in 15 BC, right, it was conquered by the Romans. This obviously brought about changes in the area. The, the Rhine River became the new frontier of the Roman world. And barbarians lay on the other side, or, or the Germanic tribes. Um, and as such, a, a road was built connecting the Roman world over the Alps through a number of passes to the city of Hoor, which is a kind of a regional capital. Um, a road went along the entire length of the Rhine Valley through what is now Liechtenstein and up to Lake Constance, connected it to modern-day Germany. And a number of people, Roman citizens, would have lived in this area in quite comfortable homes. I'm standing here in Nendel, at the foot of the Three Sisters' massive mountains. And here, when they were building a primary school in the 70s, they excavated 
the foundations of one of these Roman villas and two outhouses, the purpose of which has not been fully determined. And so between the 1st century and the 4th century this house existed here and then it uh, no longer stood after that point when the importance of this region really diminished as it became less of a frontier between two worlds. Um, and yeah, you can still clearly see the outline of the house in front of me and we'll add some pictures to the show notes of this villa. So the first thing, I guess, when I was looking at the history, the first thing I found that was specific to Liechtenstein is that road, that north to south Roman road that is Liechtenstein, basically. That was the first time I, I, mm. I caught anything that was specific to Liechtenstein. It was this road. And it's weird when you're reading about the Roman history that when I was reading about uh, uh, them going up into into Risha, they went through the Brenner Pass, which is a thing I've heard of. Like these mm. are these are the Alps, like they but they they presented the same routes for thousands of years. So it's 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 kind of bonkers to think about it. And like if when, when you're there, the country is just the Rhine Valley. I mean the Romans were were very famous road builders, right? You get these Roman roads all over Europe. Yeah. That was their thing. That was how they got their armies around so quickly. Yeah. Uh, and they built them in straight lines. And with the Alps, they're going through the path of least resistance. And basically, the, the reason for conquering this region was because it was difficult to rule Gaul for Rome when it was so far away. Having a, a direct route from Italy to the kind of Belgian and, and, and Dutch parts of, I'm using the modern mm. countries to give you an idea of the, the region I'm talking about. Yeah. Getting there was difficult if you had to go all the way through France. So having this straight road through the Alps up to Lake Constance that was um, that was key, and we now have the Rhine as basically a frontier of the Roman world. Yeah, and, exactly. And the other side of it, in what's now Germany, you have um, you have various tribes who will go on to shape Europe's history, but at this point are are the enemies of the the dominant civilization. Okay, pushing through to more more Roman stuff. So the Liechtensteiners are very keen on stamps. And it was actually through, huh. through their love of stamps that I found out quite a lot of the individual artifacts because they, they do occasionally a series of stamps uh, showing archaeological finds. And one of the really cool ones I found was a silver dinar dating back to Roman times about 50 BC. And it has an elephant treading on a snake on one side of it, uh, mm. as well as the word Caesar. And on the other side, it has uh, priestly accoutrements like an axe, a ladle, a holy water sprinkler and a priest's hood. Religions change a little. Uh, yeah. In, in the civil war against Pompey, Caesar paid his soldiers in these coins. So one of these coins was found in Liechtenstein showing the kind of, I guess, probably at the very least trade, um, if not, you know, at that mm. point, full full conquerage. I don't know if the if it was already there or if the Romans brought it, but certainly a lot of dairy, a lot of honey, a lot of what is now known as kind of, I guess, Swiss culture. The Celts, the Celts had cows. That was their thing. Okay. Uh, so that was already there. And... But but what they did bring was grape cultivation. So yeah. wine, which is a now a big part of their economy. And the, the, the prince is a lovely vineyard uh, ah. in Vaduz, which has a really expensive uh, wine cellar attached. Um, so like grapes came with the Romans and they're still an important part of things today. And water, fresh water was a thing they did everywhere they went. But I, I would say, Joe, you, you probably know this a lot and... I only know it because I've got folks in Switzerland, but there's a lot of wine in Switzerland. Switzerland's mm. big into wine cultivation and nobody really knows it because I think the Swiss keep it for themselves. They don't really export, yeah. but it's, it's a cheese. big place for it. It's like, you know, it's like France or Italy or any of these places. They're, they're big into their wine. They, they really go for it. Um, okay, just moving forward a little bit. Uh, Risha is incorporated into the empire. 
Uh, and it's a little bit, it's kind of a border state. Uh, the Rhine is the real border. Uh, and around AD 260, the Alemanni uh, were able to penetrate the, the Roman lines and pushed mm-hmm. Roman influence from the Rhine back, sorry, from the main, which is up near Frankfurt, down to the Rhine. So things are getting a lot closer to, to Risha. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, he of uh, Gladiator and so on. Russell Crowe. Russell, Russell, Russell Crowe's kind of stepdad in the movie. Uh, they reoccupied some of those lands, pushing back towards the Rhine. Mm-hmm. And then in the beginning of the 5th century, it all goes to pot. Uh, mm-hmm. The proper invasion of the German nations, breaking over the Rom- Roman Empire, changed the face of Europe. 406, 407 AD, the Alemanni crossed the Rhine. I have uh, an- another nice quote. During the 5th century, other barbarians of varying degrees of truculence uh, <laughs> incessantly troubled the Alpine lands. And just to talk about Christianity, obviously with the Romans, when they converted Christianity en masse, so too, I guess, did Liechtenstein become a, a Christian area. Uh, it's mentioned in AD 118, um, when the governor of Risha uh, took steps to suppress some uh, some Christy type people, Christians we now call them, mm-hmm. um, but uh, that's the first mention of uh, Christianity in, in Risha apparently. But obviously, uh, when Constantine the uh, emperor converted in, in 313 AD, so did all of his subjects if they wanted to keep on the right side with, of with, with, with various levels of enthusiasm. <laughs> with various levels of enthusiasm. Yeah. So the the, the Alemanni you mentioned. That's um, they were kind of a conglomeration of tribes who come together. It probably means all men, though there's some debate about that. And they were also known as Swabians to themselves. Mm. And that's a word we'll hear again during the history. Mm-hmm. They were pagans, but eventually uh, Christianity goes back. So don't don't worry. Um, so uh, as you said, Mark, that the Rome had expanded out to the River Mine, but now it was pushed back to the Rhine again. And the Rhine is this really important river in European history. Uh, and, you know, Liechtenstein is basically the start of the Rhine. This is the point when the two tributary rivers have come together and you have a valley through the Alps carved down to the down to Lake Constance, which is... The, the, these are all central parts of, uh, of, of Europe and the divisions between countries in Europe. So you can't understate the importance of the Rhine as a border. So by the late 400s, there were Ostrogoths in the area, led by a guy called Theodric, who seems to have been an important figure, but I, I haven't gone into too much detail on him. Uh, but he took Raetia, which is this region, uh, again, seeing it as a frontier with Italy, who he was fighting on behalf of the Byzantine emperors, because things had gotten weird in, in Rome. In the 600s, the Franks start playing a major role in, in European history, and they conquer most of modern France and, and Germany. Sinatra, Langella, um, yeah. Frankfurter. <laughs> those are the guys. <laughs> All those guys. But they started driving Alemanni from Switzerland into the Alpine lands controlled by the Ostrogoths. So the Alemanni had been in mostly in modern-day Switzerland, and they were now being pushed east into, into areas including Liechtenstein. Mm. But it's a much bigger thing. <laughs> yeah, for, thing for than all that. these things, like there's very few specific to Liechtenstein still. It's, it's all and Liechtenstein also we was ass- in the middle of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Liechtenstein was was somewhere around this area, basically. It it, it wasn't a thing yeah. yet. A barnacle on the whale nut of Europe. Uh, in 536, Raetia was handed over to the Frankish kingdoms under uh, the Merovingian kings, oh. at least nominally. Um, the bishops of Hur remained the de facto rulers during this time, but technically they were answerable to the, the, the Frankish kings uh, as the Duchy of Lower Raetia. 
Uh, the Franks adopted Catholicism uh, under their first unifying king, Clovis, or Chlodophy, the first, in uh, 496. And so Christianity comes back to this part of the world. I hope you got that pronunciation right, Joe, because we'll be getting a lot of angry uh, reddish comments from uh, <laughs> will. from irritated will. ancient yeah. Franks. We will. And I'd, I'd also like to mention that St. Gallen um, was an Irish hermit who set up his hermitage nearby in about the late 500s. And the, the city of St. Gallen in Switzerland is named after him. So he, he became a really, uh, really important kind of religious figure in the area. And the library built around his his monastery uh, was one of the most important libraries in, in the Dark Ages, 8th, 10th century Europe. Mm. So Irish connection, as always. Pesky monks going everywhere. Uh, the Franks allowed the Alemannic people to pretty much continue with their laws, uh, occasionally revising things they didn't like. In uh, 746, it came under direct Frankish rule, and they introduced counties as the administrative divisions. In 800, uh, Charlemagne was crowned Emperor of the West by the Pope. Nice. Uh, so he was now the, the new Roman Emperor, in a sense, even though he was a German mm-hmm. or a, a Frank. Well, like he ruled both France, modern-day France and Germany. So the, the Carolingian Empire was huge. It was most of Europe, and it was a legitimate empire. He directly appointed the bishops of Chur, increasing his influence on the region because they ruled Liechtenstein's territory at that point. But on his death, he split the empire between his sons. And Louis the German, one of his sons, <laughs> Very uh, traditional German took name. the East. He sounds like a yeah. 1920s gangster. Louis the German <laughs> over there. <laughs> Slobbering on legs, a knuckles, and Louis the German. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was what he called yeah. himself. Okay. Um, th- there were just a lot of Louis. He Louis. took the Eastern side, which included Liechtenstein. And... At this point, feudalism starts kicking in big time. So under feudalism, you've got a king and he grants fiefdoms to his vassals because he can't cultivate all of the land he owns, but he is the suzerain of that land, so he's the top ah, dog. That's a great word. And then the vassals in turn, they give fealty and military service and rent to their to their lord. And they'd also be able to offer him advice at court. Basically, you protect your peasants from the ar- armies of other nobles' peasants, or, or of other nobles, and in return they pay you taxes. It's, it's, it's basically happens all over Europe in the, into the Dark Ages as central governments start to collapse just to, and just Rome to ex- is gone. Explain that suzerain word, because it's one of my favorite words, along with plenipotentiary. Uh, but suzerain has this amazing description of it in a, a book. It's uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. And suzerain just describes, you know, a country that rules another country, rules their foreign, you know, uh, their foreign dealings, their military, stuff like that. I mean, Hong Kong is not a country, but it's, you know, has, China has suzerainty over it, you know, to- mm-hmm. total dominance. But there's this amazing description of it when you think of it in another way, which which is, even if you don't acknowledge my dominance over you, I have 100% dominance over you. And it's a really terrifying, almost like godlike concept of uh, of total and utter dominance. And it it's just kind of shows, I guess, the dominance of these emperors and yeah. so on, that they divine right of kings and all these kinds of things thrown into it. It was it was a, a terrifying level of authority over, over land and the people on that land that these people assumed. Zipping on in 800... Uh, Charles the Fat, the youngest son of Louis the German, is made Duke of Swabia, which is an area basically that overlaps with where the Alemanni lived uh, or had lived. So that was kind of a... Um, is Liechtenstein in Swabia, Joe? 
Uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. All right. So he was given the Duchy of Swabia and then he went on to become emperor because he ended up inheriting Italy and his his father's Germany and also briefly the place that's now France when his cousin died. So he briefly reunited most of Europe under one man, but he was lethargic and probably had epilepsy. Um, lethargic is so, all that fatness? Yeah, it's not clear how fat he really was. Okay. But it's, that name is stuck. So to answer your question, was Liechtenstein Swabia? Technically, no. But the Duke of Swabia was also the Count of Horatia okay. in the 900s. And so he personally united these two areas. Okay. So he kind of went, this is all mine, and I'm the Duke of Swabia, so it's all, the, it's all now the Duchy of Swabia. This is, and, and Swabia is one of the, what's called the stem duchies of the Kingdom of Germany. So they were kind of tribal duchies. There was Swabia, Bavaria, uh, Saxony. They were all kind of ethnic duchies that made up the country. Um, in 911, Conrad I becomes the first Holy Roman Emperor. And that's important, but uh, we'll keep mentioning the Holy Roman Empire. In the 10, 1079 to 1268, the Hohenstaufen dynasty uh, became the Dukes of Swabia. And so they ruled what's now Liechtenstein. They became really important. Uh, they became emperors of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, they were also kings of Sicily and Jerusalem. Um, Whoa, that's like quite the portfolio. Yeah. But the last king was, I think, 16 when he died. And um, the duchy just dried up. There was nobody left. And so the duchy of Swabia just didn't exist anymore. A dry duchy, nothing worse. And all of the various counts and so on who, who were in this area were now directly answerable to the emperor. Which is important to how... Liechtenstein became an independent country. So at, at uh, this point, it was normally it would go Count, Duke, Emperor. And more, because there was no Duke yeah. anymore, these guys were directly subservient that to will, the Emperor. Yeah. And so the, the County of Vaduz and the Lordship of Schellenberg were part of this. So they're more um, direct line and kind of yeah. more out in their own a little bit. They have, uh, a, exactly. uh, you know, they have the Emperor's ear directly, which will become important. Well, they weren't necessarily any more powerful. It's just that there was nobody in yeah, between yeah. them. There, there's one, uh, you know, rather than a chain of command, like you say, there's just one yeah. mm-hmm. link between those, between them and the Emperor, which, as you say, will become important. Yeah, but it, but it's still like an enlisted soldier answering directly yes. to a general without yeah. any yeah. any captain yeah. in between. Yeah. They're still just a... They're still no more important, but in yeah. fact, just because they have that direct line, it does kind of make them more important because they mm. actually get that kind of FaceTime and they, as we see later on, they, you know, passing correspondences and letters and stuff. And they, yeah. they, they, they're thought of in their own right rather than just being a, a, a random old plot of land in somebody else's big chunk of land. There, in the 1200s, there was a migration into this region, specifically the, the, the municipality of Treasonburg by people called the Valsers. And they still have a distinct dialect that persists to this day. So I, I visited the museum about the Valsers, and uh, here's some information about them. So high up in the Alps in Treesenberg, at about 1,100 metres, um, there's a little museum attached to the post office which commemorates the Valser people. They originated in Valais in southern Switzerland, and during the 12th century there was a huge migration of people out of Valles, up into the mountains and across into Switzerland, Austria, and this part of Liechtenstein, this village of Treisenberg. They moved because of um, economic reasons, overpopulation, and also a desire for personal freedoms. 
these people settled into into Liechtenstein life. They were given special rights, uh, special freedoms by the Counts of Erdenburg, and um, therefore allowed to colonize the land and also give military service to the Count. But within a hundred years, they had lost most of their special rights and were, were treated like uh, all the other citizens um, from different backgrounds. But they continued to speak their distinct dialect, uh, definitely up until the 1930s, and I think even till today, there are still differences between Triesenberg and the rest of Liechtenstein. Um, and here they developed and continue to develop their alpine farming techniques and really made this a distinctive uh, settlement in Liechtenstein. They still have different culture up in the mountain compared to the people down in the valley. So that's kind of interesting how long, that's, you know, an 800-year uh, cultural continuity. Okay, after this, the counts of wurdenburg sargans ruled for Dutz. Sargans is the town just across the border from, the Swiss town just across the border from Liechtenstein. So... We're getting closer. Is, is that uh, is that a bit of a strange thing? Because like Liechtenstein for a long time was more influenced on the Austrian side. Is, was it maybe strange that it was the Swiss who? No, it started off looking Swiss direction. Oh, okay, cool. All right. Mm. Um, and the process of it moving to the Austrian influence happens over over the the next little while. Okay. So uh, there was a dispute between um, Hartmann III and Rudolf IV, the the counts of of this place. And they fell out because Hartmann chose to marry a wife from the Montfort family, which mm. would have consequences on the family's inheritance. Mm. So they had this arbitration meeting, uh, and it was agreed that they'd split the land between them. The documents on display in the the, the Landis Museum, the, the National Museum in, in Fiduts. And basically, at the time, it was of minimal importance. These were normal deals where you kind of go, let's just split our county in two, because I don't like your wife. That was normal. But it's crucial to our story here. Hartmann took the lands on the right side of the Rhine, namely the Dominion of Vaduz and all its pertinences, including Schellenberg. And he was the first Count of Vaduz and took a residency in Schloss Vaduz, the castle where the prince lives nowadays. All other lands of the Württemberg Sargans dynasty that the, the other brother took and of the Monforts, the, the man's wife's family, they eventually fell into the hands of Swiss or Austrian nobles through you know, families dying out or debts or mm. being sold. But this now separate tract of land didn't. It stayed its own thing. And is this, this is like the, the formation of the modern borders of, of Liechtenstein then, Joe? Is this, is this? Yeah, exactly. This is mm. when the borders yeah, get Yeah, because I, I remember yeah. reading in my, in at one point uh, during the research that the, the borders haven't changed for like 500 years or something. So this is like the, where mm. the, even yeah, longer. So yeah. this is uh, where the initial border for Liechtenstein comes from, and it's it's pretty unique in that sense. That it's just a coincidence of history. Yeah. Like it's just a. But there are very accident. few countries whose borders haven't changed in that long. Like this is. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> Mountains and rivers help. Yeah. In 1396, the Holy Roman Emperor confirmed to Hartmann, uh, to his heir, sorry, that the immediacy of his fife. So he, he wrote him a letter saying, "Yep, I'm your boss. It's nobody else." So that, that confirmed legally what I just said earlier. Right. But in various German civil wars, the family lose a lot of their money. Eventually, the barons of Brandis in 1416 take control of the um, of this county. Um, a few years later, they bought Schellenberg from its barons and the present boundaries of the territory. So it's really 1416, the present boundaries get really 
shored up. Okay. In the next century, the valley suffered during various conflicts between the independently-minded Swiss Confederation and the Habsburg-dominated Austria. Mm. This family pretty much controlled the imperial throne, which wasn't meant to be hereditary, but under the Habsburgs it became their thing, their plaything. Yeah, they were a hugely powerful family, right? Yeah. Yeah. They came to own everything, basically. They only died out, like, as a family quite recently, in the last couple of decades, actually. There, was a Habs- mm. there still were Habsburgers of the royal line. Uh, they, you know, up until World War One, were still running Austria. And up until, like, a, a week last Tuesday, we're still knocking around with big piles of money. Mm. Mm-hmm. The, the Habsburgs were originally Swiss, but the Swiss didn't like them anymore. There were some attempts to reorganize the empire. The Swiss League resisted. Uh, a group called the Swabian League were, were, came together to, to support the emperor, and there was a Swabian War, which led to this region being invaded by the Swiss. Invaded by the Swiss. That's not something you hear every day. <laughs> Things were different back then. Uh, the castle in Vaduz was burnt. Uh, the, the Count Ludwig von Brandes was captured. Uh, the towns of Balzer, Shan, and Bender were all destroyed. This war cemented Swiss independence. It really told the Habsburgs to back off. They basically give up on trying to rule that part of the world and, and look to Austria. Mark, to answer your question about why did it become more Austrian-facing, the last Count of Brandis, he became a prior. And so he didn't have any heirs. Do you want to explain, Joe, for people who may not know what does becoming a prior mean? He, he was a priest. He was a Catholic priest mm-hmm. uh, in, in, the, in the cathedral at Hor. Yeah. So he didn't have any kids. And None that he was open about. He didn't have any kids yeah. who could inherit uh, anyway. And he sold Vaduz Schellenberg to his nephew, mm. who was a Swabian count. Eh. And so now a, an Austrian is uh, in charge of this place. He rebuilt the castle, he added cannons, and sometime around here there was a census that showed about 3,000 people living in the area. Mm. Uh, and we're, we're nearly at the point when we get to the current... Um, Tenants. The current the current tenants. So in 1613, through marriage, the Council of Hohenheims come into possession of this territory. There was the Thirty Years' War between Protestants and Catholics that ravaged Europe. Uh, and then in, in in the 1650s and 1670s, there was a, 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 like a, a madness of witch trials um, that really got out of control in the cool. area. Where 200 men and women were executed as witches over oh, the course of a few decades. Cool. Sorry, out take of my cool population, back. <laughs> oh, out of a population of 3,000 people. Oh, Jesus. Okay. No, terrible. <laughs> so wow. really, oh. Deeply, deeply uh, uncool. We acted too early. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you did. <laughs> so, Salem, you got nothing on this. So, basically, people were being executed, their assets seized. And, like, the, the state administrator had to flee because he was accused of being a witch. Hold on. I um, thought the greatest witch hunt in history was on a current U.S. president. I this Surely he can, no one knows about this. If, if that's <laughs> We don't have time to cover every detail of this period uh, of Liechtenstein's history here. But I was discussing this with Sam Hume, who hosts the History of Witchcraft podcast. And he's told me that in mid-August 2017, he's going to put out an episode all about the history of these witch trials and witch hunts in um, in Liechtenstein and neighbouring Switzerland. So, if you want to know even more uh, grisly details from this from this period, you should check that out. Mm. In in the end, the the the, the priest of treason, uh, Valentin von Chris, took the matter to the emperor and said, "You know, uh, the priest of treason, 
the, the treasonous a town up in the mountains. Where, oh, where, where right. I just are. thought that was like, okay, never mind. It's a heavy metal band. Yeah, it sounds nuts, band. yeah. <laughs> and he, yeah, he took the matter to the emperor. The emperor went, whoa, this is getting out of control. And uh, a review of the trial files sent to Salzburg University said that they were all just bogus. Uh, the count was deposed and he died an imperial prisoner. And so the Honums kind of decided they had to sell their territories because they had... Because of all that stuff. All that stuff it that seems happened. like they had been promoting this witch trial madness because they wanted to kind of expropriate ter- uh, property and stuff. I couldn't get a complete picture of it, but it wasn't great. And so they needed to sell their land to somebody. Who could it and be? And the buyer was the House of Liechtenstein. Who we haven't actually even mentioned Ta-da. yet. Um, yep. Really <laughs> enough. So, uh, potted history, anyone? All right. So we'll take a very quick break here, and then we'll be back to talk about the Liechtenstein family and where they come into this story. <laughs> a little bit about this uh, famous Liechtenstein family and how they got involved here. Okay, so Liechtenstein as a word uh, basically just means bright stone. Lichten is in like light and Stein is in stone. Lighty stone. And it was the name of a castle in Vienna. First mentioned in about 1136 and it is thought that Hugo von Liechtenstein took his name from this castle. Uh, it is on the edge of the Wienerwald, which means Viennese the forest. Viennese wood. Wiener, Wienerwald sounds silly. Uh, 1140. Uh, so the, the family owns the castle from, from then on. Hugh, Hugo von Liechtenstein. So a Liechtenstein is, is, is running the Liechtenstein castle from, from here on. From 1140 to the 13th century. And then again from 1807 onwards. The castle itself is destroyed by the Ottomans in 1529 and 1683. So the Ottomans being basically the Turks. Um, and remains in ruins until the late 1800s when it's rebuilt. Just another word about the castle. Uh, in modern day, it was used as the film set for the 90s film The Three Musketeers, featuring hmm. Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, Chris O'Donnell, Oliver Platt, Tim Curry, and Rebecca De Mornay. A very early 90s cast. Mm. I will... I will I don't <laughs> um, when Chris O'Donnell was still getting work. And Charlie Sheen. God help us. <laughs> there's, there's hope for us yeah. all. So the uninterrupted family line, so that, that was kind of a family line, but the, the real proper Liechtensteins began with Heinrich I von Liechtenstein, who died in 1265, 66, somewhere about there. He was given freehold ownership of uh, Nicholsburg in southern Moravia, which is modern-day Czech Republic. So he's given a big plot of land in, in the Czech Republic. The, the gift of this plot of land in, in Moravia was kind of a, a big deal. It was a huge plot of land, and it formed a lot of the basis of the wealth of the Liechtenstein family, as well as their estates that they already have in Austria. Uh, as the centuries roll around, the family kind of splits. It splits into three different lines, the Liechtenstein line, which we've all heard of, and then the Petroneller and the Rohrauer lines, which we have not heard of. And there's a reason. It's because those last two die out in the next generation. That's a relief. And 
as a consequence, uh, loads of valuables that the family had are just kind of lost. The, the, the valuables kind of were split the three ways and they went out of the family when those two lines died off. So that was seen as like, oh, we're fecked. That was terrible. We really messed that up. So in the 1500s, they devise a system of family law, uh, which I assume was probably not uncommon at the time. And again, they the family got split into the Steiriger, the Felsberger, and the Nicholsberger lines. Got split again to three, but this time, because they've all got all these family laws, when one line dies out, their possessions revert to the other two sections of the family. So it means that from here Keeping on, in the they're building wealth at a crazy fast pace. Yes. So it's kind of, it's, it's almost like a dynastic prenup or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you die, we get your stuff. More if your kids die. If your kids die without knocking out any more kids, then we get your stuff. So go off and marry whoever you like, but we will we will keep the stuff in in the family. Um, and they all they all agreed to it. I mentioned just I mean the the talk about having a direct line to the emperor. Uh, there's surviving correspondence from 1597 between uh, Emperor Rudolf II and Karl I von Liechtenstein, which uh, show that Karl, for, Karl I was basically having a bit of a boast about his art collection and his general riches. The Liechtenstein mm. family today, as, as well as then, are known in particular for their extensive collection of paintings and art. Uh, in this letter, he talked about a remarkable collection of Kunstkammer, which means curiosity pieces, in his Prague residence. Uh, he had lots of, uh, he had a, a silver chamber with more than 900 different items, uh, including tapestries, carpets, pieces of furniture, silver gold, yada, 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 yada. Loads and loads of stuff. Like a, a treasure room, basically. Life's hard. Oh, good. These guys. Moving on to the best Liechtenstein, Ulrich von Liechtenstein. And he's the basis for the guy in A Knight's Tale, right? Uh, Heath Ledger's uh, character, right? Kind of. Or they at least have the same name. Just just his name. Yeah, just his name. Okay. Well, no, no, not just the name. Not just the name. It is very much linked. Uh, So Heath Ledger's character calls himself Ulrich von Liechtenstein to assume this character of being a knightly, you know, jousty Mm. kind of tournament dude. Uh, but Ulrich von Liechtenstein himself was a poet, and he wrote these large tracts, uh, one including uh, something called Frauendienst, which means service Woman of... service? <laughs> service of ladies. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's it's as creepy as that sounds, but the idea is that he's going around jousting all for the love of, of women. Um so, yeah, that's his most... Fa- Frauendienst is his most famous, supposedly autobiographical piece of poetry. Um, how supposed that it is, is, I'll leave it up to you. So he writes himself as a, the protagonist uh, doing great deeds of honour to married noblewomen. Uh, just to kind of show... To pay homage to them. So I have a bunch of bullet points. I had this big, long... I found a great blog post about it. But here, here's here's the cliff notes of uh, Ulrich von Liechtenstein. He once, <laughs> he once snuck into a woman's room to wash his hands in her bath water and then drank the water. Oh, uh, oh okay. man. That's not weird. <laughs> he got a digit... He got a digit cut off in a joust and then sent a lady the digit. Like a, a van... Like a crappy van Gogh. Yeah, um, that's not weird. She she mm-hmm. loved that, apparently. She's very keen, according to him. There was this one person <laughs> who seemed to really uh, enervate good old Ulrich. Uh, he was very keen to win her over with major acts of bravado and flamboyance. He embarked on a massive jousting spree, which he called his Venus fart, his, his Venus journey. Uh, the, the, great, the great Venus fart. 
Uh, so he, he so just German is inherently funny it's when you don't speak it. It's a silly sounding language. Yeah, yeah. it's be. I, I blame, you know, Yiddish comedians in, in, in New York. Oh, they had a lot to work with, though. They, they, they kind of... These are things are fun to say. Um, Venus fart. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, so Ulrich embarks on his Venus fart. Uh, he claimed he broke 307 lances against his opponents and had 271 against him. It's not an amazing record, really, but a hell of a lot of jousting. The Venus fart resulted in the lady inviting him to dress like a leper and wait outside her castle with the other beggars who That's were what she wanted. Uh, Ulrich did this. He dressed like a leper and turned up. Uh, rather than greeting him, she promptly went to sleep for the night and left Ulrich standing outside in the rain. Uh, only sending word the next morning for him to climb up a rope ladder into her room. She cut the rope ladder and uh, he fell down into the moat. Anyway, uh, eventually he said he'd go on a crusade for her where, uh, I guess I was, it was maybe a little bit late at night when I was writing this. I have in my brackets, uh, wearing an onion on his belt, as was the style at the time. Um, <laughs> Is that a Grandpa that? Simpson reference? Uh, so it could or... be true. It might, might be. Might be. That's with style uh, at the it, time. Uh, yeah, it could be true. <laughs> yeah. It's very, like, honestly, yeah. it's very believable in this context. Right. He's dressed like a leper, sending ladies his finger, drinking their bathwater, wearing an onion. Uh, you know, maybe. Yeah. It's not the most outlandish um, thing. So anyway, he said he'd go on a crusade and that eventually won her over. Uh, I have this rhyme translated from his, his from uh, the, the beginning of one of his poems. I greet the ladies one and all, though my reward was ever small. For serving them I must confess what wealth of virtue they possess. They're all the world can have of bliss, for God made nothing else like this. A noble woman, that is why my praise of them must be so high. So he loved the ladies. Uh, he also right. he also had a wife, but uh, she didn't really factor much in the story. Apparently, he turns up at the house once and he's like, doing a bang up job, lady. And he just walks out and you know, chops off a few more fingers and sends them to some old ones in a castle. Anyway, that, right. that's my potted history of the Lichtenstein okay. family. So in 1608, um, the Holy Roman Emperor gives Karl von Lichtenstein the dignity of being called a prince. Mm. Uh, so he, he'd backed the then Archduke Matthias in a dispute with the Emperor before him and when Matthias became emperor he said you know what you're a you're a stand-up guy Liechtenstein uh with all your land and power you can be you will call you call you a prince of the prince of the empire but they didn't actually have any land to be a principality Hmm. this is kind of an obsession of the family they didn't have any land that was immediate to the emperor so in order to get a seat in the in the diet of the emperor oh, empire, the yeah. sort of the, the the ruling body of the empire, and to be able to elect the emperor, they need to buy stuff. their way in. Well, you needed to own land directly under the emperor. Because we were we were chatting about that, Joe, and I didn't, I hadn't quite got that there was like a two tier kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. you're a prince, but you're not bloody prince enough as far as the emperor is concerned. They're like that you needed to qualify in this other kind of way of owning this this em- so be, being emperor. Being a prince land. is kind of like getting knighted or something. Yeah. So, so they were on the hunt for somewhere immediate to the emperor so they could up their principality to being one that gave them a seat at the table of power. Yep. So they, you know, they really, they worked with the Habsburgs a lot. I mean, one of them was a prime minister for, for um, Charles V, I think, who, who was the emperor of, of Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. They were really powerful people, but they didn't have that official... Until, as we mentioned earlier, we're going to circle back around to... The sale. Who who was it? Who was selling the land, Joe? 
the Counts of Hohenems. Okay. So in January 18th, 1699, uh, Schellenberg was bought from this guy for 115 gulden. Okay. And on February 22nd, 1712, the Dutz was bought. And the guy who bought them was Hans Adam the Rich, von und zu Liechtenstein. Sweet. So now we now have uh, the Liechtenstein finally uh, having achieved their goal after many years of plotting yeah. to become uh, princes in their own right of the Holy Roman Empire by acquiring the lordships of Schellenberg and Vaduz. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, as we mentioned earlier, there was no longer a Duke of Swabia, so the lands were directly ruled by the emperor, meaning that uh, that they purchased themselves a seat at the Council of Princes, or the Imperial Diet, uh, in front of Charles VI, the Holy Roman Emperor. So in 1719, Charles uh, decrees that the counties of Vaduz and Schellenberg be promoted to principality with the name of Liechtenstein for uh, Anton Florian of Liechtenstein. And we have what has become since the modern uh, country of Liechtenstein. Um, it's, a, it's a thing. It's a thing. It's now a sovereign yeah. bit of land. It's a place, called, it's a place called Liechtenstein, named after the Liechtensteins. But they they didn't visit. No. and The family never went there. This kind of circles there. back to it, it, the, the very beginning where we were talking about cultural identity. Like the beginning of this country and the way that this uh, country was established is essentially as a political mm. pawn. So it's not like there was a war right. or something or like a, a campaign for independence or a separation from another nation or anything uh, or some kind yeah. of a cultural uh, touchstone that brought these people together. It's just some guy who's like, I need land in order to have a, a seat at the table. It. And he buys this land and gets a seat at the table and then it's like, you know, and he doesn't even visit. Anton Florian doesn't even visit uh, the land that he's bought. He's just, you know, I have this. So, from land. the point of view of of a, of, a, of a, you know, a dairy farmer up a some alpine valley, who cares who exactly? Cares? Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's just interesting that this is the origin story of this country. It's not. Um, it's it's almost like so. I mean, we we've looked at a lot of really tiny countries, and Liechtenstein is 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 in that list of countries where one of the most marketable things about them is that because they're a sovereign country, they set their own rules. So things like taxes mm-hmm. and foreign relations, they get to have their their own say on that, and that can be bought, can be influenced with you know relatively small amounts of money it's hard to buy bribe france it's easier to bribe you know yes. nauru um and this is kind of almost like an early version of that that it's just like this little plot of land but for whatever reason it's considered important enough that you get your seat with the emperor so yeah mm-hmm. sure i'll buy it grant it's a yeah technicality yeah. yeah so yeah in then in 1806 uh shortly after the establishment of uh of Liechtenstein as a country uh the holy roman empire was dissolved uh, following a military defeat to Napoleon, who's going to become important to the history of this place pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Napoleon then formed the Confederation of the Rhine, uh, which Liechtenstein joined, and that was... Um, a super team? It was kind of a super team uh, formed by Napoleon to kind, of, nice. to kind of manage his new territories. The Confederation of the Rhine was explained very succinctly by a Reddit user called Robbie Slaughter. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to read <laughs> just going to read his explanation here. Maybe... maybe hmm? we- is it maybe Robbie's laughter? Uh, it could be Robbie's <laughs> that laughter. Characterizes that characterizes him very possible. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah. So in either case, Robbie describes uh, the Confederation of the Rhine as follows. And this is, this is uh, I think, a, a more succinct explanation than I could manage. Uh, he said, this is, was an agreement among a bunch of conquered slash nervous German princes to provide taxes and troops for Napoleon's future conquests. But in order to get the princes to sign up, 
a process called German mediatization was conducted in which various states were merged and properties were handed over. In short, okay, I'll join your confederation, but only if you declare my neighbor's house to be part of my house and you give me all their stuff. Nice. Uh, so Maximilian I of Bavaria wanted to media mediatize uh, Liechtenstein as part of his deal to sign up for the confederation, but Napoleon refused. Uh, so the reason was because Johann von Liechtenstein had really impressed Napoleon, and Liechtenstein therefore got to be a co-founder of the confederation and maintain their sovereignty. So instead of being absorbed into a wow. larger state just because of the... Um, just mm. because Napoleon was a fan of this guy, uh, Johann von Liechtenstein. Johann's a really interesting character. Like He was an Austrian uh, soldier and later general in, in the wars against Napoleon. Yeah. But every time they were defeated, he mm -hmm. seemed to be the guy sent out to negotiate the, the treaties. And he kept producing treaties that were sort of favorable to France. Uh, Which, so it paid uh, off for him. But eventually he, uh, he... Yeah, which Napoleon liked him for. Eventually he but, resigned uh, from the military because he kept getting yeah. criticized for his diplomatic skills from, from the Austrian side. Yeah. Uh, Austrians no. were not so happy with him uh, negotiating all these pro-France treaties. How about you have all the stuff and we say sorry? Yeah, it's a good yeah. treaty. I'll sign that treaty. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, now Liechtenstein is part of the Confederation of the Rhine, along with other countries such as Germany, uh, Austria, Italy and Poland. And as I said, this is kind of like a puppet uh, mm -hmm. state for Napoleon to just rule this general mm -hmm. uh, swath of European land. The confederation was tied very strongly to Napoleon as he'd set it up. And it was um, obviously maintained uh, based on his military prowess. And um, so when Napoleon loses the Battle of Leipzig in 1813, the confederation collapses and Liechtenstein emerges with its sovereignty. Could you say... It was just left behind. <laughs> you, you dropped a Liechtenstein there. Yeah. I like mean, it's a sovereign I, member of a confederation, the confederation or the empire, or that they all go away and it's just kind of standing there going, who's the boss? Oh, nobody. Well, uh, I'm still, I'm still around. Don't forget about me. No, do um, forget about me. So then a couple of years later. <laughs> no, 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 the opposite. Forget do about you me. Forget about yeah. me. Forget <laughs> about me. Nothing to see here, lads. So just a couple of years later, then uh, the German Confederation is formed. And this is an association of 39 German states in and around Central Europe and was created to coordinate the economies of separate German-speaking countries after the fall of the Holy Roman Empire. Mm. So this uh, German Confederation consisted of countries such as modern-day Germany, Austria, Poland, Czech Republic, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Italy, and other uh, nations. All these nations have been ruled by powers larger than, than themselves yep. for quite a while. So this is just an attempt for them to kind of come together and go, listen, let's all try to uh, kind of in our own self-interests uh, negotiate and collaborate and so, we can so make it's, it's the for EU all of basically us if we work together a bit <laughs> it's kind of like an early version <laughs> of the German EU, EU. Yeah, or the, yeah or the league of nations or early german eu so in in 1818 uh, prince johann the first joseph the prince of Liechtenstein, issues a new constitution and he expands agriculture and forestry uh Liechtenstein was very much like a kind of a farming uh farming based yep. economy at this mm -hmm. time he reorganized land holdings to take into account the modern estate. Uh, he was a big fan, apparently, of imperial gardens, particularly British imperial gardens, as far as mm. I, I, I read. Um, and yeah, this is the guy who resigned from the army after being accused of being a poor negotiator, having signed a number of treaties uh, favorable to Napoleon, which 
you know, by by turn uh, maintain the independence of his of his estate. 1818 also saw the first visit to the country by a member of the Liechtenstein family, although it wasn't the ruling <laughs> prince at the time. So it's now sovereign uh, and independent, but uh, but still, no nobody who's ruling the place has actually ever been there. So I, I just have two two things from the the 1800s. So in 1839, the composer Josef Gabriel Reinberger was born in Vaduz, uh, and he became really quite a significant musician. He was the chief court composer in Munich for most of his life, and a very famous organist. And among his many prominent students was the composer Engelbert Humperdinck. Which is a great name. Wonderful not, name. It's not the easy listening sing- singer of, uh, of Please Release Me, uh, who, who stole his name. Uh, oh, damn. You know, you know that guy? Um, yeah. Please release me, let me go. I, I have heard anyway, of him. Not yeah. him, uh, but the German composer yeah. who, whose name he stole. And also in the mid 1800s, there was this thing called the Rhine Crisis. Which was not enough Rhine or too much Rhine? Uh, well, the French wanted the Rhine to become the natural border between French and German holdings again, but the Germans had taken quite a lot of stuff on the left bank of the Rhine, including like okay. Alsace, which has been forever a problem. So, as part of that, there was always a patriotic Rhine-themed songs written throughout uh, throughout Europe, including the current German national anthem, but also um, this this tune. The Liechtensteinische Volkshymn, the national anthem, has a familiar tune. Oben am Deutschen Rhein lehnet sich Liechtenstein an Alpenhöhen. Later, after World War II, they changed Deutschen to Jungen. So now the words mean something along the lines of uh, High on the Young Rhine, there you will find Liechtenstein in the Alpine Heights. So that sounds somewhat familiar. I, I bet, bet you never thought you'd hear me singing the tune of God Saves the Queen so enthusiastically. <laughs> this isn't the only anthem with that tune. The Norwegian Royal Anthem also has that tune. And the American song My Country Tis of Thee. This is this is probably a good point to just mention it. But I was actually just thinking to myself when you mentioned the, the British Imperial Gardens, the British haven't turned up. In every other podcast we've done, at some point... There is this smell of Earl Grey tea on the breeze <laughs> that is a very and good point. the British Empire yeah. turns up. And I, I remember I had actually talked about this before, that there was some study and it found that nine out of 10 countries have been invaded by yeah. the British. Uh, you know, 90%. We, I think at one point we briefly discussed having like the British are coming like a, like a sound bite or like an alarm or something. Like, yeah, Because exactly, it happens yeah. in every podcast. A musical thing. Hello. Hello. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, so the the list of 22 countries I have in front of me, I'm not going to read it out because we are probably going to do some of the countries on this, but the first one that we've covered in the podcast is wow. Liechtenstein. So as much British as you're getting in, Liechten- in Liechtenstein is the gardens, a bit of music, mm-hmm. but no British wow. empire. So in 1866, the Austro-Prussian War between the Austrian Empire and its allies on one side and the Kingdom of Prussia on the other uh, ended the German Confederation. So... At this point, uh, Liechtenstein is like, hey, you know what? Uh, we're too small to have an army and we don't want to be involved in any of this stuff. So it disbands its army of uh, just 80 men, which, I mean, I think is kind of a stretch to even call that an army. But um, yep, yeah. And it declares its permanent neutrality, which uh, subsequently was respected during bo- both world wars. Although we will get into that a little mm, bit. We'll get to that. Yeah. There's a lovely story about the uh, army of 80 men. 
there's a legend which is hard to substantiate because his sources differ. But apparently during the, mm-hmm. the this war, uh, Prince Johan II placed the soldiers, he, he gave the soldiers to the Confederation, but they were only to defend the German territory of Tyrol from Italians, I think. Uh, and he refused to have his men fight other Germans. Very specific force. Th- these guys have only been trained to fight against Italians. Yeah. You don't just don't put them up against anyone else. Just please use the instructions. Read the instruction manual and just don't put them up against anyone else. Sorry. Yeah, Show yeah. them some pasta that has not been cooked in, as in the style in yes. Italy, and uh, just watch them melt. That's that's what you do. Um, th- right. They they took up position in the yeah. Stilfse Jok Pass. And defended the, the Liechtenstein Austrian border from from Garibaldi's ra- rampaging Italians. Mm-hmm. But when the war ended, legend has it that the army came home and were ceremonially welcomed in Vaduz, and that there were eighty one of them when they came back, which is one one more than left. That was one of them pregnant. And <laughs> uh, no, uh, the, the, apparently they they either made an Italian friend uh, who who liked them. Yeah. Or it was the Austrian liaison officer who had been sent to kind of keep an eye on them, came back with them. Let's go with the first one. Yeah. Uh, should we take another little break here? Yeah, let's take a break. So this is the organ in the cathedral in Vaduz, which dates from 1874. Prince Johan II, Prince Johan II ruled for 70 years, which is, I think, one of the longest reigning yep. uh, monarchs in history. He, he was, I think, 18 when he came to the throne and he lived to a good old age. When did he, when did he come to power, Joe? Uh, in 1858. And during his, his tenure, there was um, lots of development, modernization, Two new constitutions, um, drainage projects, improved agricultural economy, mm-hmm. a railroad was built, telecommunications lines were laid, uh, improved public education, road improvements, and a savings bank. So all the things that happened to make a country modern happened under him. Uh, in terms of industry, they were late starters. Initially, some women would work from home for embroidery con- uh, companies in uh, the Vorarlberg parts of Austria and in Switzerland. So they would huh. embroider things and send them back to back to the other countries. A customs union with Austria really helped because they could sell things toll-free into Austria and some Swiss entrepreneurs decided to build factories mm-hmm. on that side of the border. Um, so that brought some factories to the area. The first factory, I think, was in uh, 1836, which was a ceramics factory in, in Shan. And it was during this period, and under Johann II, that the castle that overlooks Vaduz, which is a kind of a landmark of, of Liechtenstein, was renovated. 
So here's a clip of me uh, mm-hmm. up at the castle. It's really peaceful up here on the mountain uh, at Schloss Vaduz. You can really get right up to the walls of the castle, which is the current private residence of the Prince of Liechtenstein and, and his family. It has been since 1938. Uh, looking out from the top of the, 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 the hill where Schloss Vaduz lies across the Rhine Valley, the snow-capped Alps on the Swiss side, I can tell you that Prince and his family have a enviable view of their principality and the surrounding neighbouring countries. This really is a spectacular place to call home. It's had a long history. The first tower was built in the 12th century. It was partially destroyed in 1499 during the Swabian War. And then in the 16th century, two very imposing thick-walled round towers were added at either end of the castle and these are are still an impressive sight they look very unassailable and as I say you can stand right underneath them you look up and you wonder how anyone would even consider attacking a place like this in the 17th century under the Counts of Hohenheims further extensions were made in the 18th century it became the residence of the prince's bailiff so the princes weren't resident at that point then for a while it was a prison, and it fell into disrepair. It was used as a barracks for the tiny Liechtensteinian army, and uh, in the 19th century it also had a life as a tavern up until 1896. But in the early 20th century, 1905 to 1912, it was heavily renovated by Prince Johann II, um, and since 1938 it has been the permanent and primary residence of the Prince of Liechtenstein and his family. It was well worth the 25-minute hike up from up from uh, the valley to see this. So, uh, yeah, the, the this burgeoning independent little country decided to stay independent in World War One because it didn't have an army, but suffered the hardships of lacks of food and materials and so on. When Austria was defeated, the Principality needed to find some new friends, since its customs union with a with a crushed Austria wasn't wasn't going to be of great advantage to it going forward. Mm. So the Austro-Hungary uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire is dead, and uh, in so in 1923, uh, Liechtenstein turns in the other direction and forms a custom, customs union with Switzerland, Yay! which was placed into effect in January 1924. Since the end of the First World War, the Principality has been increasingly oriented towards Switzerland. Swiss currency has been used in Liechtenstein since 1921. Uh, so that must have been pretty handy for you, Joe, when you went to visit, I'm assuming. Like, that's part of why it's so difficult to see it as a different country. It's like the my, my mobile phone still worked because it could pick up yeah. the, the mass on the other side of the river. You know, like the money is the same. You yeah. can, you can wow. check the timetable for the bus on your Swiss transport app. It, it's, yeah, anyway. The postal service and the telegraph have also been placed under uh, mm-hmm. Swiss, Swiss administration at this time. But they do have different colored post boxes. What, what color? Uh, they're kind of blue and red, I think. Blue and red. Uh, they're yellow. Oh. In 1929, then Prince Franz I ascends to the throne at age 75. Ooh, and he has just married uh, a woman called Elizabeth von Gutmann, who is the daughter of an Austrian Jewish businessman. Uh-oh. And this was not a good time Uh-oh. to be married to a Jewish woman. So we're heading into 1930s Central Europe. 
Yes. Interesting. Yeah. That's a good good place to be a, be a Jewish business person. Yeah. So many people within Liechtenstein's growing number of Nazi sympathizers were not very happy about mm. his decision to marry a uh, Jew. And they identified her as a problem uh, within Liechtenstein. Yeah, I, I found a, a website talking about this this national socialist movement in Liechtenstein, the Volksdeutsche Bewegung in Liechtenstein. Uh, and hmm. it, it yeah. claimed that in 1933, a, hu- a majority of the 1500 Germans living in Liechtenstein, so there were a lot of actual German people living mm. there, they would have been sympathetic to uh, to national socialism. Yeah. And this is around the time that Germany, Nazi Germany, has its, uh, you know, unifies with Austria, correct? The, the Anschluss. Yeah. Anschluss, yeah. And you, so you have sort of a Nazi nation bordering up against Liechtenstein at this point. So that's... Uh, I, I, I'm reluctant hmm. to call it a super uh, team, but yeah. a, you know, a Nazi super team of the Germans mm-hmm. and the Austrians plus throwing more more countries mm-hmm. as, as the years go by. There, there, there's a, a story I was told from that time while I was visiting, which um, was difficult enough to find details on in English, uh, but there, I did track down mm-hmm. a, a few hints of it. So basically, my understanding is that uh, there's, a, there's a health spa resort in a place called Gafly up, up in the uh, Alps. Still there today, yeah. It's still there, yeah, I think so. During this period, it was owned by the national leader of the uh, Volkdeutsche Bewegung, Rudolf Schädler. And um, big fan of Hitler. Yeah, like he he was not the, so he big was fan the, of Jews. Yeah, so the only significant kind of Nazi event to happen in Liechtenstein was was kind of before the war. Um, him and some German Nazis invited uh, theater director Alfred Rotter and his brother and wife to come and stay or to, to, to visit visit this resort. And they had recently acquired Liechtenstein citizenship, fleeing Berlin, uh, where they were being heavily criticised by Nazi propaganda, particularly for their financial troubles. Mm-hmm. They were being accused of, um, you know, mm-hmm. robbing from good, honest Germans, uh, you, yeah. you know. Hoarding money, all that sort yeah, of stuff. all that stuff. All that stuff. And yes, so when he got there, he was greeted by, the, the, the group were greeted by this group of Nazis. And so they fled. And Alfred Rother and his wife Gertrude, they, they died falling from a rock uh, up in the mountains. And the yeah, brother escaped uh, to tell the story. Schedler and his three accomplices were found guilty and imprisoned, but they received a worrying amount of public support and uh, very light sentences. So that's, that's not a great... Mm. Uh, it's not a great story. And, and in recent years, people have put a plaque up there to, to Mr. and Mrs. Rotter in, in commemoration of this event. But, um, mm. you know, that that compared to what was happening in Germany and Austria, this is one event as opposed to thousands. But yeah. it's... Uh, when was that, Joe, exactly? What year? It was in the mid-30s, yeah. Mm. So cre- contributing to the climate of unease. Yeah. Um, then in 1936, I have a, a sort of a slightly lighter story here. In 1936, uh, Liechtenstein goes to the Summer Olympics. Mm. And they, only at the Olympics, which was in Berlin, right? Um, they mm. realize that yeah. Haiti is using the same flag as them. Uh, so <laughs> I can just imagine like in the flag-waving parade, they're just, what? That, that's the same. Are the, those guys from flag. Liechtenstein? Um, yeah, they don't yeah. look like they're from Liechtenstein. <laughs> Liechtenstein, go home, change. Yeah. 
So both of them were developed uh, with without knowledge of one another. Mm-hmm. So Hades flag is a modified version of the French tricolor and had been in use since 1806, according to my research. And Very uh, modified. Yeah. Turned mm-hmm. sideways and with the color removed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Liechtenstein's had been in use since its independence in 1866. Mm-hmm. So both of the flags had coexisted for almost 70 years. Yeah. And neither, like, nobody had noticed. But the Olympics had to ruin everything. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, it was uh, one of the worst things about those Olympics. That's... Oh yeah, definitely not. <laughs> That's uh, but as a result, the Haitian government added a coat of arms uh, to its flag. And Liechtenstein, as you mentioned earlier, Joe was... Uh, Fond of adding crowns to things, so they just the stuck tourist a crown office on the had a crown on and everything. That's... Luke, everything, everything wow. you could put a crown on: pens, coasters, uh, just okay. Yeah, and sorry, I'm getting so yeah. Up. The 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 prince's crown was added to the to the flag at this point, and that's how we get the modern uh, Liechtenstein flag. Mm-hmm. So in in 1938, as things are heating up in Europe. Prince Franz names Franz Joseph uh, his grandnephew as mm-hmm. regent uh, in Liechtenstein. He abd- abdicates the uh, the throne, and this was just immediately following the annexation of Austria. So officially, he says that he's stepping down due to old age. Yeah. But a lot of people have uh, speculated that because uh, because he's married to this Jewish woman, yeah, and uh, he doesn't want to face the threat of invasion from Nazi Germany, and he's a really old guy at this point. He's like in his almost in his eighties. He's just like, hey, uh, you grandnephew, take over and just deal with uh, this terrible uh, climate of you know uh, Nazi sympathizers and you know uh, Nazis, Nazi nations bordering up against Liechtenstein and. Uh, the potential mm-hmm. of us being swallowed by Hitler. In 1938, uh, Prince Franz Josef II moves into the principality. He's the first one to do so. Good uh, time. Mm. And, yeah. And declares that Liechtenstein will uh, remain uh, neutral. He bans Jewish immigration for a while, uh, mm-hmm. which is probably, you know, a good idea. Considering uh, uh, that, yeah, just know, in their uh, defense, everyone did that. No, nobody, nobody wins yeah. points on this front. Everyone was terrible mm-hmm. during uh, yeah. during the pre-war period yeah. in restricting. They they did allow, not, not that this really is to their credit, but they did allow about 200 very wealthy Jewish people to obtain citizenship uh, over the preceding yeah. period. Mm-hmm. It's m- much like Rotter, the theatre guys, the kind of people who had the money could become citizens, people who didn't couldn't. And I think um, they use their citizenship to not actually stay in Liechtenstein, but to, to move on, but use yes. their citizenship. But their also, uh, there were a number of entrepreneurs set up companies and factories. Yeah. So uh, Jewish people with money would, would come here and contribute to the economy quite significantly. So um, that's an interesting feature. Of, and one of them is a company that you might have heard of, right, Joe? Uh, oh, well, no, that's the other thing. Okay. So, so the... The biggest company in, in Liechtenstein is Hilti, which produces yeah. drills and um, hmm. and other building-related equipment. They're they're very very well respected around the world. Apparently, they've loads of shops in the US and stuff. I've used, um, I've used Hilti. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Uh, and they are a big employer in Liechtenstein. I think the biggest, but they got their start making tank parts for the Nazi war effort. Yay! Um, and ca- co-founder Martin Hilti. Was a volunteer in the uh, Waffen SS. Oh my God! So oh, Jesus, mm-hmm. <sighs> mixed bag. Some of the companies. I mean, they're they're, they're not the, company... the only company, I guess. This, there well, are no, plenty yeah. Of companies I mean, that have, Hugo Boss, uh, Siemens, all of these companies were yeah. were helping out. Volkswagen, but yeah. that was yeah. a bit of a surprise to me. I was kind of trying to find 
the names of some of the companies that were founded by these rich Jewish emigrants. Yeah. And and couldn't, but I came across was oh, I wonder was Hilti a Jewish? Oh no, no, the opposite. That, it was the opposite. Nope. Yeah. Oh well. Oh. Um, they have their own train station. Hmm. The company, yeah, has its own train station in Liechtenstein. One of the three train is, stations in Liechtenstein. Yeah. So, yeah, despite Liechtenstein itself remaining neutral, the war would have pretty dire consequences on the Liechtenstein family mm-hmm. uh, and therefore the nation of Liechtenstein itself. Uh, they would lose the vast majority of their holdings uh, in the wake of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, um, basically a, a bunch of countries in the in the wake of the defeat of Nazi Germany confiscated lands from from Liechtenstein from the family of Liechtenstein saying that they were Nazi lands yeah. well they confiscated um, lands from Germany lands. and Austria yeah. uh, which happened to be owned on a more basic level by the Liechtenstein family privately held privately lands, right? owned by yeah. um yes so moravia so, becomes yeah, the Czech republic yeah so the Czech republic uh yeah claims moravia and up to 1600 square kilometers of agricultural and forest land in the wake of the second world war uh which is for reference 10 times the size of Liechtenstein. um mm. and the Liechtenstein family are not super happy about this uh so this ends up in a kind of a court battle between yeah. uh the government of the czech republic and the Liechtenstein family uh, as a result, citizens of Liechtenstein were forbidden from entering Czechoslovakia during the war. And at one point, the Czechs offered to give back all the castles and palaces, minus the surrounding lands, which mm-hmm. to me sounds like a bit of a slap in the face. It's like, hey, yeah, you can yeah, have the yeah. castles, but we're going to keep the land beneath them. Uh, and Liechtenstein were like, yeah, yeah, no, that's we want the land back, actually. So as a result, uh, Liechtenstein didn't have diplomatic relations with uh, the Czechs up until 2003. So the entire existence of Czechoslovakia went without uh, without diplomatic relations because it's now, yeah. of course, two countries. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's Czechia and Slovakia now. Yeah, my impression of that is, is just in 2003, Liechtenstein is like, you know what? We've got loads of money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like we don't we don't really care anymore. We're not an agricultural country anymore. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. We, we are pretty damn rich now. So we, we got over we it. Keep it. Yeah. Just to mention, um, on those lands that were held in Czechoslovakia, that a uh, hundred Hungarian Jewish inmates of this Strasov concentration camp uh, were were working on the land for the Liechtenstein family. Um, the so it was basically the guards were renting out somewhat actually illegally the the people living in the concentration camp to local landowners. So. Jewish slave labor was used on Liechtenstein family land. Uh, but, you know, subsequently, those lands were taken over by you know the the the, the Russians and and, and whatever. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's not not great. Uh, also, for some of those um, uh, you know Jewish people coming in, there was a lot of trade in terms of you know uh, Jewish people trying to offload what they had in terms of assets, which they realized were depreciating rapidly because they mm. weren't really allowed to have possessions. So the Liechtenstein family, it is said that it is, was totally legit, but it's still, you know, it's, it's morally questionable that they were buying up a lot of... A very nice art from people who didn't have much yeah, choice about selling it. Yeah. Uh, it said that there was mm-hmm. no looted art identified in Liechtenstein collections, but they got a lot of stuff really cheap because the Jews were really scared and needed money fast. So that's just... Uh, 
a note, a not very nice note. Uh, Jewish slave labor and opportunistically buying all their stuff. Mm. In one way, you could argue that it wasn't, you know, it was actually almost a help to them because it was giving them money at a time that they desperately needed it. But they certainly weren't giving them any more money than the, the market demanded. Uh, and and just to mention the, the other asylum seekers who did make it to Liechtenstein, 500 soldiers from the first Russian National Army mm-hmm. were granted, uh, well, they were disarmed and interred in, in uh, Schanwald, I think. No, in Schellenberg. And they're fascinating because they were Russians yeah, fighting on the side of the Nazis, right? They were but, Russian nationalists, like anti-Bolshevik, anti-communists. But they were also... But they were also Ukrainians. They, they weren't necessarily yeah. just Russians. There were some you know, from like, uh, you know, kind of vassal territories to mm-hmm. Russia that had been squashed. Mm. I, I remember reading in a totally separate thing, but that a lot of concentration camp guards in Auschwitz were actually Ukrainians. They were, mm. um, you know, the Ukrainians were totally uh, integrated within within the German German army and fought, you know, the Russians and so on. And this because is just one of those groups. They were suffering under communism. They, yeah, so, they, they were fighting mm. against Stalin. And so th- they thought, like, they may not have been completely... And actually, there, there's some writings about the commander, whose name I forget. Boris Smyslowski. That's Smyslowski, the guy. yeah. Uh, where he kind of, towards the end of the war, as he became more and more aware of the ideology underpinning Germany's war effort, got right. increasingly uncomfortable with his... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. his his uh, comrades. Ruh-roh. But it was more from the point of view that they wanted to invade Russia and oust Stalin. Yeah. And this was the this was the spearhead they were going to ride. Enemy of my enemy kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. enemy of my enemy. But anyway, they, they were given um they were given asylum in Liechtenstein eventually mostly repatriated to Argentina, but a few of them stayed. And some took the Russians offers to go home to the USSR and Bad they move. were never heard of again. Yeah, uh, nope. I mean, Liechtenstein is is just the the reason it's brought up is is it's the example of where they weren't necessarily automatically given over to the Russians, but in mm. many cases, as far as I know, the prisoners were totally just re- repatriated, yep. and for the most part, they were they were vanished, they were ghosted, either gulags or just killed outright. Yep, never heard of again. So the ones who went to Argentina got the best deal. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, after that point in 1945, or after the Second World War, uh, the Liechtenstein family then were in a pretty dire position, having lost a bunch of land and uh, being pretty uh, devastated by mm. the conflict. Uh, not physically necessarily, but monetarily, because they lost a bunch of land and a bunch of their holdings. Yeah. They ended up having to sell a bunch of their uh, artistic uh the, collection, the art that it acquired yeah yeah their collection so um there's one uh leonardo, leonardo da vinci portrait which is mm-hmm. currently in the national gallery of art which was sold to the u.s in 1967 ah. uh but generally in the post-war period uh the country underwent a period of industrialization mm-hmm. uh led by Franz joseph ii who came to power just before the war as we mentioned mm-hmm. And he served as uh, Prince of Liechtenstein from 1938 until his death in 1989. And he wow. sort of took the lead in, again, pushing the country from from being an agricultural power into yeah. being like a more modern industrial nation. Now, nowadays, 40% of the population work in, in productive sectors, which right. is incredibly, yeah. like, it's the most industrialized nation in Europe. And it's really yeah. strange that it's such a rich country has so much um, manual work, you know, industrial yeah. work, because usually rich countries, it's all service industries and everyone's working in big data or 
something. The connotation for Liechtenstein is is the banking and fintech and you know. Yeah, but the, but their industries are really high quality. So. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, they make a lot of money off that. It's just it, it, it makes for quite a happy society in a way because mm-hmm. there's jobs for everybody. Yeah, and they're and they're useful jobs. Yeah. Um. So let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with sort of modern uh, Liechtenstein and then we'll wrap it up. Yep. So yeah, as you mentioned there, Mark, Liechtenstein has, in the years after the war, uh, and in the second half of the 20th century, became like an industrial powerhouse. Mm-hmm. So Liechtenstein used a low corporate tax rate to draw business into the country. Uh, and obviously it's a strategic location right, you know, in the heart of Central Europe yeah. and, you know, relatively uh, easy country in which to do business. Customs union with Switzerland, which is a big help. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also become a financial hub because uh, banking uh, becomes more and more crucial to the world economy. And uh, as we said, it's a, you know, simple, easy place to do business. Similar to Switzerland, big on kind of privacy and setting yeah. up uh, financial trusts financial trusts and those kind yeah. of things exactly yeah. or at least it was um, it was mm-hmm. yeah Up until like 2009 uh, we'll about that a little bit later yeah. but for yeah for this period it's important yeah to... so yeah I, I mean the size of the country I guess allowed it to pivot quite quickly into uh, from agriculture into industry mm-hmm. in the years between uh, 1988 and 2008 uh, just to give you an example of the growth of Liechtenstein, uh, industrial exports more than doubled from 1.2 billion in 1988 to 2.9 billion, uh, that's US dollars, in 2008. Ooh. It has 270 licensed fiduciary company, companies and mm-hmm. 81 lawyers serve as nominees for or manage more than 73,000 entities. Uh, wow. So corporations, institutions and trusts. Uh, mostly for non-Lichtensteinian residents. That's twice the population. There's, there's yeah. two times as many companies yeah. as there are people. Nice. And about one third of those entities hold a controlling interest in other entities uh, uh, chartered in countries other than Liechtenstein. So uh-huh. uh, there's a lot of, uh, I suppose, power financial in chicanery. the country now. Particularly uh, financial chicanery, yeah. You could say, and um, yeah, there's a lot of controlling interests that are uh, at least partially registered in Liechtenstein. Yeah, modern Liechtenstein there's an unemployment rate of around 2.2 percent, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the lowest in the world. Just a few lower that we've covered before are Singapore, uh, which is 2.1 percent, the Isle of Man, which is 2 percent, and Gibraltar, which is 1.8 percent. Wow. And Bhutan, which we've also covered, is just one place away from it at 2.6 percent. Wow. Uh, and, you know, just to round that out, Qatar is actually the country that declares the lowest unemployment in the world at 0.7%. And just because I had to mention it, Zimbabwe in 2009, which is the uh, most recent time that they declared their unemployment oh, figures. Do you want to guess what it, <laughs> what I mean, it was? Let's say 80%. For Zimbabwe. 80%. Uh, 80, 86. It's 95. 
Oh 95%. What the yeah. fuck? So they're doing okay. Um, yeah. They're doing okay, yeah. They are... Yeah, they're they're currently uh, one of the wealthiest countries in the world per capita, or they, mm-hmm. at least they were in the late 2000s. I'm not sure about right now. but Oh, uh, no, uh, right now they're uh, per capita. They're third after Qatar and Luxembourg. Uh, Macau's in there as well, but it's not wow. a country. There you yeah. go. Third in the world. And the prince is, is wonderfully, personally wealthy. He owns one of the banks. Wonderfully wealthy. Um, it's wonderful for him. So he, he has a personal wealth of billions, which is unusual for monarchs nowadays. He has a day job as a banker. So not, not only he owns lands that are valuable, but he actually is um, business successful too. In terms of GDP per capita, I actually looked at their GDP outright. Uh, and bearing in mind, uh, Liechtenstein has about 40,000 people and this country has 12 million. Uh, their economy is the same size. It's Somalia. Their economy is the same size as Somalia, but Somalia has 12 million people and Liechtenstein, 40,000. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, just to mention in 1984, Franz Josef II, after doing all this work and kind of turning the entire country around, uh, hands executive uh, control over to his son, Hans Adam II. I, I, I saw him. Yeah? Did you? Yeah, I went to Mass in the cathedral and he was up in his balcony, his special royal balcony, him wow. and the princess. Did he have those little um, okay. binoculars on a stick thing? Not that quite. <laughs> he was kind of quite close to the altar. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah he's, he looks happy. And um, it's, it's also important to mention, uh, uh, yet again, an, uh, another slight point of shame on the country uh, is that in 1984, when Hans Adam II comes to power, uh, I think one of, his, one of the first things he, do, he does is to hold a referendum uh, which grants women the right to vote in national oh, elections, God, which yeah. they didn't have up until yep. that point. And not only did they not have it, they they previously said no in two other referenda in the sixties and seventies. Oh, really? So but been, only okay. men would have had the vote. Yes. Yeah. So so they've oh, been fighting Jesus. this one for quite a while. So you you think about the fact that you know this is a country of like we said forty thousand people, mm-hmm. and half of them are not able to vote. So yep. <laughs> until yep. nineteen eighty four uh, is is kind of crazy. I came across a woman called Melita, Melita Markser, nay Kaiser, mm-hmm. and she was from yeah. Shanval, which is the place I stayed when I was when I was visiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she had been fighting for decades. Basically, once she had daughters and had quit work to take care of them and her daughters wanted to go to high school and they couldn't, she started realizing that there was something not quite right with the structure of society. Uh, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And... In in the end, they resulted. They resorted to going abroad to embarrass Liechtenstein. They went to the Council of Europe, brought a court case, and that kind of thing. Uh, really, wow. I think nineteen eighty four just happened because Switzerland had event had finally given women the vote everywhere, right? As well, because they had uh, one or two cantons that were still holding. Yes, out they really they it, like it wasn't that the whole country was was reluctant, but yeah, that they had to they had to eventually make it a federal law because oh, a couple of cantons wouldn't. Yeah. Um, a sexist in a position of power. What? Hmm. Uh, so just a couple of extra notes here. In 1990, uh, Liechtenstein joins the UN. Uh, it had previously, I believe, been blocked from joining the UN because UN members were wary that Russia would try to exert influence over oh. smaller nations like Liechtenstein, huh. uh, which is an interesting note. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Russia would never exert they're, influence they're... over another country. Yeah. No, never. I've never heard of them doing that anyway. In 1991, they joined the European Free Trade Association. Mm-hmm. And in 1993, a guy called Mario Frick becomes Europe's youngest prime minister at 28. Yep. And he wins re-election in 1997. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's about all that I have. We should also actually touch on the scheme 
that I think was uh, conceived by Airbnb for you to I, rent the country. I don't uh, think it was Airbnb, in, but it was a similar. It was a similar yeah. company. I thought it was the, the like okay. that Snoop Dogg tried to rent Liechtenstein, and Liechtenstein said, "What? No, no, thanks." And then somebody in Liechtenstein said, "Actually." And since then, they've been able to have this package. And you're right, it probably is a company, I guess, locally based, where they'll, they'll rent out a lot of the kind of public areas of Liechtenstein all at once. Mm. And I saw um, Halo, the video game, I think it was Halo 5. They, they took a whole section of Liechtenstein and had the Master Chief on, a, on, a, on one of those dune buggy things. Uh, I think it's called a Warthog. Um, driving around mm. middle of Liechtenstein. So it's like, it's seen as the thing you can do. You can just rent out a bit of Liechtenstein and, you know, turn it into whatever. Because it's so small. From an article I read, you, for a period, you could, in theory, rent the country for 70,000 euro yeah. per night. But no one ever did. Yeah, no one ever did it, no. And now, and I don't think it's possible now. So it was more, I think it was more of a publicity stunt. But the idea was you could have your own coins minted and your own... Um, you know, you could meet the prince and have a little party with him. Oh. And so, it, yeah, uh, it's yeah. Uh, the rental scheme is a Liechtenstein-based marketing firm, uh, Rent-A-Village by Xnet, and also Air, Airbnb, I think, are partners of that as uh-huh. well. They do the accommodation part, I think. They organize that. Yeah, but anyway, no one ever took them up on it. Oh, no, they, they have. They have taken them up on it, for sure. No, not not renting the whole country. I think there are people that have rented uh, parts of it, this, but this I don't think anybody's yeah, ever exactly. actually rented the entire country it's, for 70 it, grand a night. That's, how, that's how they advertise it, but that's not what you get for You don't get to rent the country. You get to rent okay. a part of the country that makes you say, that you're renting the country as a, as a media thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was also blacklisted in 2000 as a center for money laundering. Yep. Uh, but has since toughened its laws and made major efforts to clean up its financial practices and in 2003 was removed from the OECD's uh, blacklist for countries who enable uh, Yay. enable money laundering. Although, although there was a point um, I, I pulled an article from the New York Times here in 2001 Right. where uh, two financial advisors in Liechtenstein were charged with laundering millions of dollars for the Cali drug cartel from yeah. Colombia. Nice. But uh, yeah, seemingly that's not that's not a big uh, big thing anymore. They've they've kind of just one thing I would point out. Uh, I looked at the OECD thing, and that was the first time they'd ever done that. They named and shamed tax havens, and they named thirty one countries. Uh, including Liechtenstein, but also Nauru, our old friend Nauru, and Liberia, and our old friend Liberia. Uh, oh, sorry, actually. So, what what they did was they named and shamed in two thousand, and then they gave in two years twenty six of the countries agreed to change, and there were seven who refused, which included Liberia, Nauru, and Liechtenstein. So big ball awards to them. And Liechtenstein... So we should said, just use that list for picking episodes, basically. Pretty much. Uh, yeah, there's a few others. Uh, yeah. Marshall Islands, uh, Vanuatu, they're all possibles. Monaco and Andorra. In fact, a lot of eventual uh, 80 Days uh, episodes there, there, I think. Um, Preview of season, season three. three for you guys. <laughs> but I have a quote yeah. here from uh, Katja Gay, who is uh, the director of Liechtenstein's Office for Financial Affairs. She likened the country's new openness to builders in the 70s who had used asbestos and were castigated for spreading a health risk. You might lose some business in the short term, but if you don't adapt to the new rules, you will not be competitive anymore. Wow. So they basically saw it as like, look, we've had a good run, you know. I guess we can't keep we this going to. forever. <laughs> exactly. Wow. All right. So, so just an update on the uh, the, the politics. Um, in 2003... There was constitutional changes. Oh yeah, that uh, allowed the gave the prince incredible new powers. 
Mar- Mario Frick was the guy yeah. fighting against that. He and uh, like his political yeah. career, I think, was ended because it mm. didn't go it, because they gave more power back to the prince. And he was like, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah the prince wanted more power, the ability to dismiss parliament, yeah. uh, to approve judicial nominees and veto anything, basically. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. he basically, as far as I understand, threatened to leave the country if they didn't vote his way. Yeah, he said, we'll just go back to Austria. I don't need to live yeah. here. I own most of Austria. So yeah. I can just leave. So... And you can go back to being a backwater. Yeah. What a bollocks. And then after people uh, voted for this constitutional change he handed over power to his son who is the hereditary prince and does the day-to-day princing speaking speaking of the royal family there was just one other just another royal family member which i I think it's cool to mention she's the first person of african origin to marry into a reigning european dynasty and she's princess angela Liechtenstein. she's originally from uh she's actually originally from panama so another 80 day shout out Hmm. but uh yeah she's of african origin she's the first known person to marry in She's uh, currently 59, I think. There you go. Yeah. I, I, I asked the Yulia uh, and Sebi uh, if they had ever met the prince. And um, let's just listen to some of their comments on this. Have you ever met the prince? I have, but it was uh, like five years ago. Okay. There's like, in every school... Um, it's like one Eingemeinde, which um, one municipality. You know that uh, can once in a in a year they can go to the to the field as the prince, yeah. and they can do something like singing or dancing, mm-hmm. blah blah. And then we the Schellenberg Primary School was um, five years ago there, and then I saw him. <laughs> I did meet saw him again. And have you ever seen him or met him? Mm, like. Same as he did, but my mom um, meets the mother of the prince like when she's going to work. Oh right, yeah. just on the street. Yeah, and she also goes shopping in the village. So like yeah, in the co-op or something. Really? Yeah. So you, you just had to check out, and it's it's Forstalo uh, <laughs> is buying some bread. Yeah. Okay, that's nice. Do you like having a prince? Do you think it's a nice thing? I think so. It's it's not bad. Yeah. It's it works. Yes. Well, I don't really care. I <laughs> know. Yeah. So uh, you know, they're they're pretty much just normal people, to be honest. Uh, they live in a castle, but otherwise, not not so much to. Uh, there's not that big disconnect between people and and prince that you get in uh, in countries like England or the Netherlands. Yeah. You could literally um, walk right up to the castle. There's a kind of interesting uh, episode in 2007 where the mm. country was accidentally invaded by Switzerland. Oh, yeah. Um, where 170 Swiss soldiers got lost and marched into Liechtenstein accidentally and then realized uh, what they'd done and turned around and went back to Switzerland. And uh, the Swiss, co- Swiss government was forced to officially apologize to Liechtenstein, who I don't think were... Uh, That's you know, pleased particularly annoyed by that all oh, right um but yeah just just because it's a such a small place and the i yeah. guess the border particularly switzerland is so fluid that, yeah and um, like up yeah. in the mountains you can't tell like i saw one guy a user called turicus on on reddit who said that he, he was yeah. stationed during his military service on a base right near the border in the mountains yeah and they were just told never go north when you're leaving the base just don't go north you'll end up in Liechtenstein again right <laughs> yeah so and this has happened happen before. Yeah. 
that'd be embarrassing if if it happened again. Uh, yeah, and also just a couple of fun facts, like the fact that uh, as we mentioned, did we mention earlier about the false teeth, or was that before we no, started we recording? No, we haven't. We haven't said that yet. Okay, that was uh, a little peek behind the curtain. There's a company there that manufactures most of the world's false teeth, and they happen to be headquartered in Liechtenstein. That uh, it's the world's biggest exporter yeah. of false teeth. Yep. Yeah. Evo Vivident. So they ma- so. they manufacture twenty percent of the world's false teeth, but they are the single largest yeah. country ah. exporting false teeth in the world, uh, which is wow. a bizarre record to hold. A false teeth dynamo. Yep. Mm. Um, Liechtenstein's also the least visited country in Europe. I read, which is you know partially because it's one of the smallest, but it's uh, yeah. it, you only it, get sixty thousand tourists a year. It's very nice, but I, like I wouldn't fly to Europe just to visit. Yeah. Um, if you were in Switzerland and had a spare day, definitely go and have a look. It's it's gorgeous. I wish yeah. I'd have more time to do a bit of hiking. Um, but it is nice to wander around. I I have a couple of football things, sports mm-hmm. things, uh, relevant entirely. Okay, so yeah. Liechtenstein sports, real quick. Uh, just to mention the Olympics, they've competed in every summer game since 1936, the one with the swastikas, and they only sent uh, three people to Rio in 2016. They've won nine medals. Uh, two gold, two silver, and two bronze, all for alpine skiing. But um, all between 1976 and 1988, so a 12-year period. But interestingly, that makes them uh, the highest country in terms of uh, medals won per capita. Like oh, they're, wow. They're okay. technically the most successful nation to ever have competed in the Olympics per capita. Yeah. Because they've got, what, not, you said nine, uh, nine, yeah, medals nine medals for 40,000 people? It's actually pretty impressive. I mean, I think um, most of them are in uh, Winter Olympics, but yeah, yeah I think they're good at skiing. They're, they're also all... the smallest. They're also the smallest nation to ever win a medal at any Olympics, hmm. winter or summer. Um, and they're the only nation to win a medal in the Winter Games, but not in the Summer Games, according to ah. the research that I read. Hmm. Yeah. So um, they so. got all their medals in alpine skiing, and eight out of nine of those medals came from just two sets of siblings, the Wenzels and the Frommets. So if those families wow. weren't Liechtensteinian, they'd be stuffed. To football and to a bit of an Irish connection. So they're, you know, they're really small. Um, so they don't really have too many prof- professional fl- players. I think there's a guy, Mario Frick, a different Mario Frick, different, politician we talked about. Different who, guy. Uh, yes, different, same Mario, different guy. Who, okay. who played professionally and yep. uh, played, uh, played in Italy, I think, actually. Maybe Prugia? I forget. Um, anyway, he so did. He did. they've had a bunch of wins. Uh, they've beaten Luxembourg and San Marino twice, and they've beaten a bunch of other countries in Europe, uh, Moldova, Northern Ireland, Iceland, Latvia, Lithuania, Azerbaijan. They've actually beaten quite a lot of countries. Um, their biggest defeat was to Macedonia, which was 11-1. But in 1995, Ireland drew nil all with, inverted commas, a mountaintop, uh, which is how it was reported in the Irish press, uh, when we were ranked ninth in the world. Uh, according to Mario Frick, who was playing in that game, it was a night to remember for us. It was the first draw in our history. So it was a sensation for us. It was amazing. Uh, Tony Cascarino, uh, his response was, it was a massive scar on us as a team. That was the time we became yeah. the aged team who couldn't go on any longer. Right. Uh, Jack Charlton said to the team at halftime, there's nothing I can do for you. You'll have to work this one out for yourselves. Uh <laughs> Yeah, anyway, so just a harrowing moment for Irish football, uh, but a pretty positive moment yeah. for Liechtenstein soccer. I have a little bit more on Mario Frick, if I can if I can just cut in there. Um, just I found this article about him uh, entitled Mario Frick, Liechtenstein's Unsung Hero. I'm not sure how unsung he is, but as you mentioned, he's 
again, like it's a it's a pretty incredible achievement for somebody from such a tiny country uh, to mm-hmm. have played, like you said, in uh, Switzerland and Italy. I think he played in Serie A in Italy yeah, for a little while. Um, and I just got a quote here from this uh, website called the Gentleman Ultra uh, from that article. He says, "Okay, uh, it's not easy playing for the Liechtenstein national team." Traveling to Europe only to concede plenty of goals and playing with an awareness that earning a good result is a hard task, even versus someone like Malta, San Marino, or Andorra. Liechtenstein is a country with around 40,000 inhabitants, and for their national team, the only reasonable ambition is scoring three or four goals in a whole of World Cup qualifying rounds. Mm -hmm. But under Mario Frick's guidance, they achieve some unthinkable results like wins over Azerbaijan, (laughs) Luxembourg, Latvia, and the valuable draws with Slovakia, Iceland, Montenegro, and most notably with Portugal. Uh, Considering the context, Mario Frick's achievement of 16 goals in 22 years is more than outstanding. So, I mean, again, from a a guy, uh, you know, in uh, playing for such a poor footballing nation, he, he was dragging them along. Yeah, definitely. And FC Fiduts play in the Swiss Super League. So they um, yeah. do okay there. And I, I was speaking to that, uh, that that teenager, Sebastian, about this. He's a football fan. He kind of said, what most people like about FC Fiduts is that they bring Basel and Zurich and Bern to Liechtenstein ah, to play matches. Right. Yeah. So it's a real yeah. big event for them to like basically yeah. have the See superstars the of their, games, their yeah. league come and play in, in their tiny stadium i mean it's a gorgeous Rhineside stadium but uh i i yeah i yeah. kind of see the appeal cool yeah i mean fc basel are a pretty pretty big team like they're they're no mm. joke so yeah they're that, that the must Champions be a big uh, big deal and for burns them young boys are quite good yeah mm-hmm. oddly named <laughs> taken out of context oh uh, man let, let's not delve into the history of the founder of that club. <laughs> no it, 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 the found yeah. the founding's pretty boring i, I looked uh, into it it's nothing yeah. scandalous yeah uh, there's also th- th- there's a guy called um, Al Valser, a dance music artist. Oh who yeah, this guy was controversially nominated for him. a Grammy in 2013 uh, yeah. against Avicii, Skrillex, Swedish House Mafia, and Calvin Harris, who are yeah. people I've even heard of. Yep. Uh, he's a ruthless self promoter who plays a guitar, and um, the song isn't great. Yeah, it's garbage. Uh, Philip Sherburn of Spin wrote it was a clunky rock transfusion and low budget video which made Rebecca Black's Friday sound like a cutting edge in comparison. Oh Jesus! Um, you gotta get down. How on did he get nominated, Joe? Do you do you, do you know? He, like I didn't. I kind of read a little bit about it. But was it some kind of online vote or something? Like he okay. was a member of the voting um, body and lobbied his fellow right. voters. Yeah, he, he he was just like a social okay. media fiend. Yeah. Like he just really worked it so well politically. Um, but his music was garbage. And uh, like Skrillex didn't really pay as much attention to the, the voting procedures. Like this guy was uh, yeah. a, a victory for boring administration administration over electronic music. Yeah, he, he seems to have a real opinion of himself. He also believes that God is his manager. And I believe he's um, a prick. Right. But he he's, he's done well for a guy from a country most people can't find on a map uh one, one thing that Liechtenstein does have that switzerland doesn't so while a lot of its traditions and its kind of alpine uh traditions are more or less the same when their cows go up into the mountains and come down from the mountains and there's a ceremonial parade they wear little wooden hearts around their neck called herzli um which swiss cows don't wear 
So that's something that's typically Liechtensteiner and not Swiss. I can hear you melting, Joe. You're you're, you're thinking how lovely that is. Yeah. Or I'm thinking a bell yeah. is a lot better to find a cow than a wooden heart. I feel like the Swiss are... Yeah. All right. So that is Liechtenstein, mm-hmm. a fascinating little country um, with a yeah very interesting history and, you know, pretty much on top of the world right now in in, in numerous senses. It's very high. Uh, which uh, is, you know, a nice positive way to end up... At least 400 meters above sea level. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, high GDP and uh, Olympic powerhouses by all accounts. Um, Drill bits yeah, and false actually, teeth. Yeah. Good combination. One uh, leads to the other. True enough. Yeah. So one thing that we want to ask, actually, and I just want to pop in here at the end, is that if you guys have any suggestions for episodes that we uh, or places that we should cover next season, as we're kind yep. of wrapping up uh, season two right now, we would really appreciate it. Um, we always welcome feedback. We've had a couple of really nice emails from people and tweets and things like that. So if you're enjoying the show, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any suggestions, we would really like to hear from you. So uh, please get in touch. We, we, you know, we want to cover the places that you guys want to hear. So we're very lonely. We are lonely yeah. men. Um, yeah. So we also want to thank uh, Harry Baby for their sponsorship of this season. Uh, remember, you can get ten percent off any of their products at HarryBaby.com by using the promo code eight zero days. We want to thank our Kickstarter backers today. We're specifically going to single out uh, Sarah O'Farrell and Niall O'Leary. Uh, thank you guys thank you. very thanks, much Sarah. for your contributions. Thanks, Sarah. You guys are awesome. I just need to thank a, a couple of people. Um, so obviously Sinead Dowling for showing me around uh, Vedutz and Sean and uh, her students, Julia and Sebastian, for talking to me. The, the, those two Liechtensteiner teenagers have a YouTube channel. If you want to hear what the Liechtenstein dialect sounds like, search for Salvatore Sebastian. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to that and you can see them doing their thing. Uh, see them with your eyes. Um, also, Martin Meyer talked to me a little bit about, uh, he's from Balzers. He, I was put in touch with him by a friend. And also um, Donat Buchel, who is the um, curator of the Landis Museum in Vedutz, helped me out a little bit. And so I'd like to thank him and recommend you visit the uh, Landis Museum when you're there. It's It's a very good national museum. They've got a 1 to 10,000 scale model of the entire country, uh, which is oh, Jesus Christ. cool. Wow. It all On fits in case. <laughs> On an yep. A4 page. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So uh, that's Liechtenstein. So thanks to everybody for their help with this episode. Thanks to you, Joe, for uh, going and taking a visit. Oh, it was, it was a grueling train ride. For making that possible. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. the hellhole of, of the Alpine. Uh, you can rate or review the show on iTunes. That's the best way for you to help us get more visibility. You can also uh, share this episode with a friend or just tell them about the podcast. Uh, that always really helps. You can also find more episodes of the 80 Days podcast anywhere that you find your podcasts. You can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or now Instagram, uh, where we are on each platform uh, forward slash 80, day, 80 Days podcast. And you can contact us at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. Joe, where can people find more about you on the internet? Oh, they can see some of my ramblings on timetoburn.com, although not that frequently updated. And Mark? 
Uh, I similarly don't update my blog enough to warrant you going there, but uh, check me out on Twitter at, at markboyle 86 All right. And you can find me on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly or at LukeJKelly.com. We'll see you guys in two weeks for our very special uh, season finale. And until then, uh, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Auf Wiedersehen. Bye. I just made a realization when you just mentioned Holy Roman there, yeah. uh, Luke, and you, I think you, like, you slightly you said it in the word, and it made yeah. me realize that if you switch the third letter of both words, you get Homie Roland Empire, <laughs> which Homie is Roland a Empire. deadly empire. Yeah. Homie Roland. <laughs>